people today we're talking with courtney gardner about education so let's dig in courtney has so much great experience both from her personal life as well as being an educator and being a community organizer and on the front lines with campaign activism so we're excited to have you here thank you courtney yeah thank you so much for inviting me this is a great opportunity to share some of my experiences and talk a little bit about education, shine a light on some causes that I care about. Fantastic. Why don't you give a better introduction of yourself? Because I'm sure I left everything out. My name is Courtney Gardner, and I did go to Princeton University and graduate in comparative literature. And I just been exploring and a constant learner in general. And that's what I feel is what like drives me as a person. And I enjoy my education and I appreciate it and where it's gotten me. And I want children to be inspired early to read. I did learn very early and it's served me well as a skill. And I feel as if that it is a window into other worlds. It's a mind opener. And I feel like there's nothing that can happen to you from reading a book rather than you got smarter, really. So <laughs> yes, you, there's books that like can defy the odds on that. But I but mean, read the banned books are typically awesome and wonderful and everybody should read them because they're banning them because they don't want you to be educated. And tragic. I mean, I am dying over here. It's, I mean, beloved Toni Morrison, my hero, basically. She actually taught at Princeton, too. Uh, and I used to oh. have to stalk her. Anyway, I'm just saying, I do love Toni Morrison and the books that they are banning just blow your mind. I can't it believe it. It blows your mind. It's it, just it, it, it is just a sign that it scares them for us to be educated and for our entire school system to be the way that it is public school, public education today, there are definitely bright spots, but the disinvestment from our schools is just like insulting to a yeah. place where we're supposed to believe that the children are our future and invest in our future. What's well, actually scaring me that it's trying to literally put in place propaganda and like thought control. I'm just saying like, to me, it yeah. is really what book banning does. Well, it definitely is disrespectful. How about that? Like this back history month and oh, it's disrespectful to be trying to erase critical thinking around open discussion, open discourse, like other differing opinions, any opinions actually that are valuable. And our librarians do hard work to determine what timing on the age groups is appropriate. And there's so much disrespect. The same as with abortion. I mean, it's like, who are you? to be talking about these books that you haven't read yet. But anyway, fine. <laughs> there's so much disinformation and there's so much bad noise, bad stuff getting out there and people don't know how to tell the difference, right? Like they are not good at checking their sources and um, understanding. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, like why I'm here. I'm just another voice out there in the ether on the right side, the good side, the left side, I guess, on the correct side, telling the truth. Speaking truth to power, as they say, right? Actually, I guess instead of truth to power, I'm speaking truth to the masses, you know, just trying to help promote awareness. 
like you, I care about um, education. I care about people understanding. And there's so much nonsense out there that's bullshit and bogus that we have to be louder and more out there. I mean, I'm a person that worries so much about misinformation, disinformation, and an engagement period, right? Because people look at it as, well, their lives are busy. And the more immediate concerns get answered more quickly sometimes than an election that could pass by in a day and just be forgotten, not made time for or something. And I mean, that, that's kind of what my concern has been primarily for years now is just getting people engaged and telling them who's running. And I, I have my candidates. I mean, I'm, I'm a professed progressive Democrat, liberal, you know, but I definitely want people to know what the issues are. And it's, I've worked for Shape Up the Vote, and that was nonpartisan. It's participation that, you know, I feel like it's the application of democracy. I mean, it's, it's the, it's every civic engagement, people actually participating and getting their voice heard. I mean, obviously getting people to realize what the issues are and that that's everything, right? It's multi-issue world, like Audre Lorde's quote. There's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. We all need to fight for everybody's freedom, whether it's me fighting for you or men fighting for us, or I don't know if you're straight, but I'm straight. Me fighting for LGBT. We all have to come together as an intersectional. We're fighting against the patriarchy. That's the enemy. Also bring up Fannie Lou Hamer's famous quote. We are not free until we are all free. And wonderful people to be reminded of during this Black History Month. I'm cognizant of the irony of the fact that Black History Month is in February, which has the fewest number of days. And so you do get a bonus day this year. A friend of mine pointed out that President's Day like messes it up kind of. With- we had the Super Bowl, Valentine's Day, and Fat Tuesday all back to back. And yeah, nobody was worrying about Black History Month during those days. You know, I know it should be just in, embedded in our history and intertwined with everything. But is it, though? I do celebrate Black History Month. That's something that I feel is important because it's an excuse to. I mean, it's like we, we might as well, like, amp it up a little bit for February and bring out the events. And I, I take it as an excuse. Make it a holiday for myself, actually. Right. So of course. that's what I do. There's the new Bob Marley. Uh, oh, I'm so excited. I'm doc. so excited. Uh-huh. Doc? It's a doc, right? No, no, it's a live, like they, biopic. biopic. Is that is that the term? Yeah, there's somebody I don't, I don't playing, know. they're playing him. That's going to be good, though. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait. I'm not an expert on Bob Marley, but my parents live in St. Croix, Virgin Islands. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they do. And I mean, he's, he's really important. And I feel like if you wear a Bob Marley t-shirt to any occasion and you're dressed to your best, you're doing the best, you know? Because yeah. it's like an icon. Yeah. And I finally, after all of these years, because you know he's an icon, he's like he's like associated with weed and Rastafarianism and reggae, of course, big time Jamaica. But at the same time, there's so much documentary material, like there's so it's an interesting life, and I didn't really know the details. Even though I did live in St. Croix for different spells of time. But I watched one finally, and it was so amazing to see, particularly his photographer. She encouraged him not to speak proper English, just to speak, be himself. And 
I could see that being the way I grew up as something that wouldn't necessarily came to mind even because I would want communications so badly with the world, right? As yeah. in, let's get our message across. We can do it. Like, it's kind of like code switching to me and my my world. Or it's like learning another language, not honoring your own, right? It's just like another way of communicating to somebody. But that was a was a really well documented in that documentary. Just to change my, to, cause I, I learn things every year that like blow my mind. I don't mind. I, I'm open. <laughs> but it's also sometimes it's like there's unconscious bias. It's being aware. Like we all have to do it. It's not just because you're a white woman that you need to be. It's because we're all affected by this system where we see it so early in our lives, the way it functions and the way it influences everything around us. And we're very perceptive at early ages and it colors your life more than you really wish to know. And eventually we have to fight back because we don't need to be indoctrinated that way, actually, to something like white supremacy, which is what I'm thinking of in the back of my mind. Not back, maybe the very middle. Right in the front. It's right out because that's kind of the um the enemy that we face is white supremacy ideology and its legacy you know so the anti-racism movement really encourages me and i feel that i don't know i was talking about juneteenth and that's another thing i mean it's it's another that's a bonus day that you got a new holiday so another holiday for people to have mattress sales Oh my goodness. I mean, Uh, I love it. I I don't want my listeners to think that I'm poo-pooing Juneteenth. I think it's great that we have it. I mean, it's better to have it as a a national holiday than to not have it. I honestly didn't even know what it was until about six years ago or so. So I'm glad for people to be educated, but it is like another Hallmark holiday that you are going to have, you know, mattress sales or whatever. And the colors are co-opted and like used for everything. Like, from what was it they had um watermelon flavored something i don't know just just, just crazy. Oh, yeah they had like potato chips that were watermelon flavored that were terrible oh. yeah it's awful but i was gonna say about juneteenth is that i love the the unearthing of because i didn't know about that's the thing about me is you that didn't know about it there's i didn't there's know about it either yeah. My, my dad's from the Caribbean and my mom's from New Jersey and no one no one told us about it, I guess. And I actually had a problem with <laughs> my out of touchness. <laughs> but for some years I did grow up in a predominantly white environment and I didn't feel even different levels to it, right? In some ways it was completely normal to me because that's all I ever knew. And then in other ways, the reason why that was normal to me was because I knew it wasn't exactly normal and you know, there's some awareness of of everything that I was going through, but it wasn't a net negative or anything. I, generally, I thrived because I had like something to represent. I felt like my family pride wasn't on the line all the time, or at least I felt like I was marching forward into the community as my family's kid, my mom's dad's kid, and I had a, my parents. My parents did a good job actually of sending me off into the world with a perspective and that couldn't be shaken very easily. So it wasn't a problem so much as maybe a burden in a way. Yeah. And that everything I did mattered (laughs) to me. I felt that way because I was being watched in a way, you know, and I was kind of, people were excited that I was there. I went to the University School of Nashville. It's a wonderful school. There's a lot of retrospective things about 
looking like how I felt at the time was sometimes interpreted differently at the time as I see it now. And that's crazy. So I don't know which, which is exactly the truth in a way. Like, I think it's a blend because I had an international perspective because my dad is from Trinidad and Tobago and I had visited, you know, home, Trinidad and Tobago, his home, our home, you know, my heritage home. <laughs> so I had an international perspective and curiosity and my dad was always himself, I guess. I mean, we had cousins come through as like the landing spot when they first come to America, they come through my dad's house and I meet some cousins and do they have like a, a Rastafarian type accent? If that's well, it's Trinidad and Tobago, so it is different, but it's a patois. But my dad doesn't really have one anymore. Maybe he does, though. That's the thing; it's a mystery because I don't hear my mom's Jersey accent that strongly either. Right. You know, I'm like they sound normal. It's the rest of y'all. Um, <laughs> well, you said y'all, but other than that, I never detected any Southern in you. Yeah. No, I said y'all because it's a conscious choice. I've done that now. For yeah. the inclusivity. Yep. It is. Because <laughs> I actually avoided it hardcore because um, I was blocked a little bit from getting a Southern accent because I didn't want to because my parents, my dad didn't act like it was a big deal. Okay. So not everyone was worried about it. But my, my mother was telling me, not often, but at least once, don't bother picking this accent up. You're going to want to move one day. You don't want to be made fun of by your cousins. They will make fun of you if you get a Southern accent. And she wasn't totally pushy about it, but she was real about it. And she was obviously telling me the truth too, I could tell. So I was kind of had a block against even picking up any accent. I don't know if it's officially code switching, but my version is when I was growing up, I was kind of a valley girl or I, I had adopted surfer speak and very colloquial slang that, you, you know, I was in Los Angeles. So I had adopted valley girl speak and I said dude and rad and I mean, it was the 80s. So give me a break. So then when I went up to grad school in the 90s, I was in Northern California, not Southern California, and my graduate advisor was like, you have to stop using those words. You have to stop speaking that way. Nobody's going to take you seriously. So yeah, and I, and I think he was he was right, and I certainly did. I sort of had to drop it. But it is funny because when I get back together with my old friends uh, from back in high school and stuff, I do kind of revert back to using, most of it's gone, but I use the word dude a lot. <laughs> I keep using the word dude, which is kind of funny because as a feminist, I probably need to stop doing that. And I say you guys all the time. I still say that, which is kind of ingrained by the patriarchy. Part of my deconstruction of a lot of my education that I am like a, I hate the term grammar Nazi, but I am still one of them, right? If, if there's such a thing. I'm extreme a little bit even like that that term is has a has a has a hardcore to it and that's what I mean I'm a little bit extreme so naturally right like like if I see an error in print like it will like bite my eyes like it will like scream at me and that's what I want people to know sometimes when they're getting as an impression of their writing at the same time it's so colonized it's so European and like Western educated that the, the value of the written word is, is higher than spoken word, that perfection and orthography and spelling is so important. It's just kind of a classist or a way to... Does the term Ebonics 
Have you ever heard that term? Yes, and it's now mostly called AVE, African American Vernacular English. Okay. Yeah, Ebonics was only around for a few years, so I'm I'm dating Ebonics, myself. Right, right. It's it's a they, they decided Ebonics was also was coined by a man that nothing's wrong with Ebonics as a term exactly, but we decided then then it was AAVE Vernacular yeah. English. Then they took that out too because verna- implying that it's all vernacular was annoying. That right? implies that it's. It's not a real language, kind of. Superficial, yeah, yeah. Like it's all slang. Um, so I'm, um, Gen Gen X, and when I was a lot younger, so this is dating going way back. Um, but my mom taught uh elementary school in South Central LA, Los Angeles, and it was interesting because she basically taught in the same room for I don't know thirty years, and over time the demographics evolved. So at one point in the earlier time of my life, she it was a, a lot of African-American kids in her class, third grade and public school. And then over time, it became much more Hispanic. And so I remember like I have these images of or these memories of my mom um, for like years. She was worried about Ebonics. She was a little bit of a grammar Nazi, too. And I've be, I've grown up as a grammar Nazi in that sense. So the word Ebonics, I don't know, that now maybe has a negative connotation. At the time, her position was that grammar is, you know, important. And she didn't like Ebonics or whatever you want to say. And she was, she was the teacher. She was the elementary school teacher. So she felt very empowered that she was supposed to help these kids learn proper English. And she took that very seriously. And when the term Ebonics came out... It was upsetting to her because she's like, I'm trying to like make all this progress and help these kids assimilate into the world and have proper grammar and proper English. And she was upset because Ebonics for the listeners is really, um, and you correct me if I say this wrong, but my my understanding is Ebonics was coined by a, a gentleman who was like saying, we want to own this, own these slang words or whatever as part of our culture, right? I mean, in a way, it's an extension of the N-word, you could argue, right? Using the N-word in rap. Well, the way I look at it is from my nerdy Princeton perspective, I guess. I took linguistics a little, yeah. a little while because I do care about language deeply, right? And I think that there's a large, there's a big strain of me that does have, um, that, that loves English in, in like the most proper way possible. As far as me, the way I like learn is to do like to the nth, like everything. So I like to know the etymologies of words and the Latin root and the Greek root and know, and I think spelling matters because it tells the history of the word. So, and I understand that love for English, like no doubt. Yeah. So, and my friend Lauren McDonald, she's trying to make a revolution of language science over language arts being taught in schools, hmm, which is linguistics. Right. And that's talking about the different ways that make like the grammars, like, like Noam Chomsky with his grammars, that Ebonics has a structure. And it's just as complicated as all the other languages, you know, like it's just its own language. It has rules and 
it has its own rules it's yeah yes and your brain develops it's it's, i lovely i'm i'm like a fan of linguistics but i'm no expert but i also and i mean it by a fan like probably a fanatic because (laughs) i do um spend an awful lot of time trying to perfect or increase my level of fluency in spanish oh Um, cool yeah i do i spend a lot of my time caring about my um keeping it up my spanish like i know it gets rusty very quickly i've lost most of mine yeah yeah and and also I want to, like, I always want to know, like, more about dialects and stuff like that. Like, I want to know the difference between Colombian versus Cuban versus Nicaraguan versus Salvadoran. Yeah, that, <laughs> that reminds me. I took Spanish several years growing up, all through middle school and, and then high school and college. But I think all of my teachers, or especially the one that I had the main, I think I had her for three years. Uh, she was from Guatemala. So that was the accent that I adopted and knew and was practicing. I still remember when I went to Spain, I was trying to practice my Spanish and it was pretty broken still. I was still learning, but they couldn't understand me because my accent was Central American and they were like, just speak English because they spoke English better than my Spanish, certainly with my accent. So yeah, it's pretty funny how the accents can be so different. And I think what your family, it sounds like, imposed upon you was this wonderful empowerment. You're special, but you're not special. Like you're not different. You're just like everybody else. And that you were able to walk around with your black skin and be like, hey, I'm cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I belong here. Everybody should have that. But I think a lot of black families growing up in communities where they were not exposed to other people, they were only hanging out with like people so they didn't see the difference so that's in like an all-black community same thing happens in an all-white community and that's why we have the white supremacy you know where they're they're not exposed to gay people they're not exposed to black people and so then they're they're other and it causes so much more division i grew up in southern california and i ended up growing up in a part of los angeles that's more diverse because my mother was upset when we were living in Orange County, which is um, a more, although it's it's totally more diverse now, but back then it was mostly white. And my dad was a Methodist minister. So the church that he was a minister at was almost all white. And there was an Asian family that came once and my dad was nice to reach out to the new families. And he always did that with everybody. So I was like probably five. I don't really remember this. My brother was maybe seven and my brother made the comment to my mom, gee, why don't they find their own church, you know? And it was kind of innocent and harmless, and it was just an observation for him. But my mom is like, oh my God, we cannot live here anymore. <laughs> like, that was, she's like, we have to move to a more diverse community so that my kids do not grow up as racist people. And like, that is just an anecdote that, you know, my mom shared, you know, as we were growing up. And I was like, yeah. Thankfully, we grew, we moved to like more diverse part of Los Angeles. I had a huge number of multicultural, you know, people at my high school and I, I loved it. And I have ever since sought that out wherever I landed. I've been like, well, where are my friends who have different colored hair and skin? And you know, I lived in San Diego, which is a lot of old white people. And I sought out the like European expat group and they were all like different people from all over to your point 
that perspective or that international perspective, that's what they actually, I, there's a name for it that I, I almost embrace, but I don't think I quite fit. Third culture kid. Have you heard that term? Third no. culture kid. Third actually, yeah, because outside of the U.S., interesting. Third culture means that you know two cultures besides the one. The first culture is the parent culture. The second culture is where the child or adolescent spends some of his formative years. And the third culture is the combination of the two, whatever is made from that. That is the definition of third culture kid. It, it's more particularly suited to someone who both parents were immigrants, maybe, and they they moved here, like a like one of those like a straight immigrant experience, not like me. But at the same time, it it did seem to connect to me when I read the definition of it because of feeling inside and outside of a culture. That's how I feel about my New Jersey, Trinidad and Tobago roots being raised in Nashville, Tennessee, the definition of third cultural kids that matters to me most is that you identify with people not based on their culture, but based on the similarities you have outside of only culture. Because you see things differently. You don't see yourself as part of a fixed group so much as a member of the human race. And as you can identify based on your exclusion experiences, really. You're comfortable in a uh, multicultural environment because you grew up that way. It's, uh, That's all part black. of it. But I meant there's also that feeling that you can bond off of that, like, that general the, the racism of American. Because we, we do, like, yeah. or the patronizing attitude of white people. <laughs> totally. International students and me, that's what I was doing at, at, at my school. Was I didn't realize it, but I might have even been lumped in as not my own by choice, but I cannot tell the difference. I cannot tell if it was me being attracted to them as being like, get away yeah. from these other white kids who aren't accepting me anyway, or they're just the regular people that live in Tennessee. You know what I mean? I might have been interested. I might have been like, who's this new child from Japan? I have to be a friend. So I can't tell if it was me being lumped in like who was doing the, the excluding or if anyone for just a mutual. It was, it was organic. It was yes. Yes. So it's everything. Because of having a partial international background and having parents that just believed in opening my eyes to as many cultures as possible. So it made sense that I'd be attracted anyway to the new kids that were from a different culture because that's a wow, interesting thing that attracted me versus possibly just the regular old Tennessean kid or whoever was, a, I do remember being partially excluded or feeling like an outsider with the white children as if they aren't interested in you or something or you are definitely categorized as different when you may not feel different because we all grew up together and it's a little ridiculous, but whatever. I just see that sorting that happened as a little bit questionable, but also partially on myself because of my perspective and possibly me being attracted to the other, quote unquote, my own self and being just internationally oriented 
And I also think that it partially was the white kids or the majority culture pushing me in that direction as if what they used to call my friend group, United Colors of Veneta, which dates me. But you understand what I'm saying is that we were an international crew and my friends were generally the newest kids to the country. And that was my norm. I had one white friend in there and she was like me though. Her parents were college educated, both of them like myself. Like looking backwards, I just suspect that I felt more comfortable with these other kids, these international students, because I was a first generation immigrant myself in a halfway sense that I was not aware of. But I do remember going to their houses and letting everyone speak Korean, for example, and just being comfortable. And we all would like bond over, you might call it dysfunction, but the one white friend felt, felt as if we were amazingly full of drama in our families and she didn't understand how it was possible to have such conflict and arguments and what have you. And we were just like, whatever, sheltered, simple white child. <laughs> and it wasn't even that, that her life was perfect, but her perspective was sort of not understanding the first gen dynamic possibly. And I totally know exactly what you're talking about. Thankfully, because we moved, and shortly after we moved to the more diverse part of Los Angeles, one of my best friends growing up was from the Philippines. She had literally just come, like you said, and she spoke pretty good English already, but it was always amazing to me that she didn't really speak Tagalog as well, but she could understand it. And so when she would go home, I would go home with her after school and hang out with her and she would always have to like put the rice on and get dinner started before we were able to kind of hang out. But I thought it was always interesting because she didn't really speak Tagalog very well, but she obviously understood it and her parents didn't really speak English very well, but they understood. So they would have these conversations that were only half in English. So I was only understanding half of it. But yeah, it's just so important to get exposed to these kinds of different cultures. And I thought it was so much more interesting than my kind of boring vanilla family, although I love them very much. Yeah, it was so much more worldly, even though I pretty much stayed in California my entire life. So I'm not officially a third culture kid, but I have an international perspective to your point. So there you go. And I'm so grateful that I do. And the most important thing about that, I believe, is what it means for me as an educator and that I can identify with these kids that have been born in America, but whose parents have come from somewhere else. And there are so many of those kids right now in school for me to understand, and I do understand deeply. This election, let's talk about that. Because I know you're out there on the front lines, and what are you hearing about disinformation and AI and Russia? I mean, let's be honest, or China or whoever is fucking putting crap out there that people are believing and Fox News and OAN and, you know, the Americans are guilty too. I, um, and the I, education system and I was teaching homeschool though, but it was civics class and homeschool. It was a very cool homeschool. Thank you for teaching civics and homeschool because there's a lot of people that don't get it. It was a, it's a very particularly awesome homeschool that's called Cultural Roots Homeschool Cooperative. 
and they have a lot of interesting classes and it's amazing. It's an amazing group of students. It's basically recentering black and brown students, right? Like it's a multicultural, environmentally conscious community. It's it's amazing people. So I was very honored to to teach there. But one of my best lessons was my media literacy. We had some visitors occasionally come through the class. It was like news to a lot of people, some of the things I was saying in a way, like a clickbait kind of yeah. trying to incite a click. I mean, I try to get people to read laterally, like to open more than one window when they're reading in general, like a news article and that kind of thing. Cross-reference your sources. Cross-reference your sources, exactly. Where, where the photo originally appeared is important too. Thinking about that. The photo, interesting. Originally oh. appeared because you want to find out their motives behind the article kind of always and you always have to know what slant you're reading and pay attention oh, kind of um, follow the money follow for the money that's what that's the one that blew everyone's mind because I was I hate to say it but I'm not gonna hide it everything needs to be sustained by money in this society it's capitalism so even things like a wonderful movie that you love that is sending a message that is positive to the world it still needs maybe to buy some action figures or go to that theater to sustain and be able to do it again so it stays viable in this world. So I just pointed that out and I said they do want your dollars in some way or another, even if it is for goodwill dollars. It just means to, to keep your eyes open to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keep your eyes open and read the fine print on those ads you're going to see on TV um, coming up towards the election. A lot of times the group who sponsored the ads or wrote the article are pretty vague and kind of hide behind some sort of a veil of confusion in order to fool and gaslight us into buying into their bullshit and disinformation. So we all got to be aware, especially with AI, I think it's going to be even worse this time around with this election. So anyway, we all have to stay vigilant. So thank you so much for joining me today and sharing some of your wisdom with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It was really so great to have you. Thank you. All right, hysterical people. I know you're out there. And if you're listening to this right now, you're one of the ones who's listening to the end of the podcast. And what that means is right now, when it ends, you can leave a review. Please take a minute and tell us how you feel or leave a comment. Go to our website. We've got the blog. We've got lots of options. You can go to any of our social media. We've got the groups and Facebook. We're now on threads. We're starting to drum up some excitement or at least some energy starting to get it bubbling up ahead of this election because we really got to get our act together and you know all hands on deck for this one because this might be the, I mean I'm sorry I hate to say it this is the most important election of our lifetime and it might be the last so stay hysterical everybody we are the universe so beautiful through all of the hurt we'll stand invincible so beautiful we'll take on the the world.